0: Well, good morning, Chapelwood. I'm excited to be here this morning with you, and I uh, appreciate the opportunity that uh, Ben has invited me to participate with you this morning. I was reminded, um, actually thinking about this, that Ben and Brenton were the two first two student and spouse uh, that we met when we moved down here. and uh, and now I get to work with Ben every day. I mean, how great is that, right? So I'm excited, I thank you, I'm very appreciative of your partnership, both with ITS and actually through the Crosswords Baptist Association with my home church, Refuge Bible Church, that Ben just prayed for. Um, So we're excited to be part of God's work here in Indy with you. And now, I've been, Carol and I, my wife Carol is here with me, when, we've been here three years and we've been, this is my first opportunity to be in education, per se, uh, as part of the seminary. And I've become familiar of vast research that's done on the, uh, what factors contribute to learning. I mean, there are studies of all kinds of learning environments, the skill and Giftedness of the speaker, the length of attention uh, attention span, and how all these contribute to how we absorb and retain information and learning. And each one of these factors has some effect on our learning, uh, but it's not. Neither one, none of them, can overcome the issue of motivation. Motivation is the number one factor in learning. And when we're looking for a comparison in the Bible of different uh, types of motivation, my mind goes to the passage we're going to look at this morning, Acts 17. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, let me set the stage for you. So as we come to chapter 17, Paul and Silas are journeying about This is Paul's second missionary journey. And in Acts 16, we see that the Holy Spirit literally shuts the door on their plans and calls them to Macedonia, where they first step into the city of Philippi. And then, after Philippi, they head for Thessalonica, which is where we are this morning. And when they get there, it was Paul's custom, if you've read the book of Acts, to go to the synagogue of that city and to teach the Jewish population first. And it seems like in every city that Paul went to, the Jewish leaders, born mostly out of jealousy, respond with ah, simple feedback like beatings and stonings and imprisonment and driving them out of town like they did in Philippi. It sounds somewhat like some of the Facebook responses I I read sometimes of people's posts uh, that create this environment that we live in today. It's easy for us to criticize other people and their views, and it's easy for us to criticize the response of the Jewish leaders in Paul's day. When we focus on others, rather than our own lives, we dodge the embarrassment of our own self-righteousness and the need for our own repentance. We can create a defensive barrier to the gospel intruding into our lives. For example, we can study Scripture and we can analyze all the nuances around Paul's situation and never consider how it applies to me. Now, I've seen this a lot of times in sermons and Bible studies that I participated in, how we approach the Bible can either soften or harden our self-protective hearts. And to avoid hardening our hearts, it's helpful not to concentrate on why someone else would respond the way they did, but consciously ask the question, how does this behavior How does this circumstance, how does this person apply to me as I read? In a sense, we need to put ourselves into the story we're reading and let the Holy Spirit push in on our hearts. So let's do that this morning and try to find ourselves here in this story in Acts 17. I've titled this sermon, Motivated for More, Because, as I've suggested, motivation is the key to learning, and I'd like us to grow personally and collectively from our time together. And I hope we'll see that motivation is the central idea emerging out of this passage. So let's pray and ask God to reveal our own sinfulness and His gospel solution for us. Father as we have sung and prayed we look to you to speak to us personally and collectively I pray that this church would work together to faithfully pursue the mission and the calling that you've given this church as a whole as a body I also pray for each individual that they would Get a glimpse of your personal and intimate involvement in their lives this morning. Do a work in all of our lives. Penetrate our hearts. Soften them. Break them down so that we see our need for repentance, for forgiveness, for your presence in our life. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So. If you're able, I would ask you to stand as we read God's Word this morning. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. They let them go. This is God's word. You You may be seated. Now, for a moment, I want to consider the Jews in Thessalonica for a minute. Now, they follow a religion based on what Old Testament scriptures, Old Testament law, that they live far, far away from the center of that religion. Jerusalem is where the sacrifices are made, where the priests and the Levites practice their responsibilities, and if you had never traveled to Jerusalem during your lifetime, you would not fully appreciate the significance of blood sacrifices in the law. You'd have never participated in the Day of Atonement, for example, which gave people a working parable a picture that displayed the necessity of atonement for sin. And you would have read about but never experienced these blood sacrifices that were a constant thing in the temple. Blood flowed constantly. Smoke rose continuously, reminding everyone of the never-ending cost of their sin. So in Thessalonica... It, could be, it would be easy to follow the letter of the law externally, but never have it really impact you internally. The same is actually true for those living in Jerusalem, but for slightly different reasons. In Jerusalem, sacrifice was so frequent that it would become start to become insignificant over time. Because they happened continually... You become deadened to its impact on your heart, and it's like white noise in your life. Imagine that you live next to a runway at a major airport, and over time the noise from all those planes taking off and landing fades in your consciousness because it's so constant. Your brain adjusts to make it seem like that noise doesn't even exist anymore. So, if you're a Jew in Paul's day and you follow the law, either you've never participated personally in animal sacrifices or you've become deadened to its impact because it happens so frequently. In either case, the religion that you hold on to has morphed into something it was never meant to be. In Thessalonica and all the other towns in Galatia and Macedonia, and all the places that Jewish communities were in the Roman Empire, their actual connection to God is reduced to a weekly reading of the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Their whole idea of salvation is tied to a past covenant made long ago with Israel, and a future promise of a Messiah, who will come and unite his people. A past salvation covenant and a future salvation celebration become the central focal points of your religion. And as time between these two markers increases and increases and increases, the significance of your present faith fades and becomes like white noise in your life. Now, these two factors that push the present nature of our faith to the background, not experiencing that faith firsthand and nor experiencing, or experiencing it too much, actually. Likewise, do we become deadened to the impact of the gospel because we think we've heard it all before, but we've never really experienced it firsthand? Like the first century Jews, is our faith a salvation event in the past or, and a hope in the future, and yet present experience is but routine and merely ritualistic? If so, you could be sitting in Thessalonica on that, on that Sabbath day. So let's get back to our story. One day, two strangers come to town. Imagine on the next Sabbath, one of them gets up to teach and talks about events and people that you have heard nothing about. This rabbi named Paul speaks obviously from firsthand knowledge, explaining and proving the fulfillment of God's promises that you had never considered before. Reasoning convincingly that this Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And Paul comes back over the next two Sabbaths to teach again. And each time he's more and more convincing. So that there are actually some Jews present, as well as many Greek followers, men and women, who are persuaded to follow him. And then the trouble starts. There's a riot, which leads to arrest. And suddenly, Paul and his party have vanished. They're nowhere around. And once again, let's ask ourselves, where might we be in this part of the story? What do we think we know with certainty that might not actually be completely accurate? Is our present faith all about doing things that the Bible demands us to do so that it will keep us in the good, on the good side of God to ensure the future we hope for? How connected do we feel to Jesus? And are we learning more and more about him and deepening our understanding of him? Perhaps like the Thessalonians, if we hear something we don't agree with, Do we ignore it, do we argue about it, or do we literally create a riot over it? Do we desire new insights, or are we emotionally distanced from the center of our faith? I hope the title, Motivated for More, will in part stir your heart for more understanding and highlight the present nature and the theological center of your faith. And these are two things I hope we'll take away this morning. Number one, is the law or the gospel the theological center of your faith? And number two, do either of them contribute to your, pers- your present experience of faith? Or are they only a past event and a future promise? You know, one way we're like the Thessalonians is our tendency to focus on the commands of Scripture, much like the law in their day, rather than the nature of our life in Christ. This reflects, I think, an inclination for all of us to want to do something, rather than to rest in the grace of God. So there's no confusion when I say doing and resting, I'm not saying they're opposite of each other. In fact, resting is not passive. It's active, like doing. It is an active striving for communion in the one we rest in. As Hebrews 4.11 4, says, Let us therefore strive to enter his rest. Both are active efforts on our part. But the motivation of doing and resting are actually quite different. One is to accomplish something that we want to gain, and the other is to gain something that's already been accomplished. Let me give you an example in Ephesians 5.1, if you want to turn there quickly, and let's examine our tendencies as we read this verse together. Well, I'll read it. You can follow along. It's a a short verse, Ephesians 5 1. Therefore, imitate, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, how many of you, like me, are drawn immediately to that middle part that says, be imitators of God? I bet we all do, because that's how we're wired. Our minds naturally go to what what we should do or what the Bible is telling us to do. Yet, the whole basis and benefit of imitating God comes from the gospel that we rest within or the fact of our identity in Christ. What you can't see, because we pulled this out of context, is that the last part of chapter 4 that the word therefore refers to says, you were sealed for the day of redemption as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God. Do you see how our doing flows out of what has already been done? This is the gospel. This is what caused a stir in our hearts. And this is an important distinction. And then it's then repeated at the end of this verse when it says, We are beloved children. This verse is not saying that we imitate God to become beloved children, but we're already beloved children, so we imitate him. We imitate him with all the power and provision our union with Christ gives us. So do you see how you can look at this verse at least two different significant ways? Instead of zeroing in on the command first, Why is it that we don't first notice and dwell on the gospel before we get to the command? The truths of who God is, what he has done, and who we are as a result. I would propose it's because we think we know all there is about the gospel. We tend to jump over these words like white noise in our lives. We're familiar with them, we think we're saturated in them, and we're actually more, as I said before, more tuned to doing rather than resting. So what can make the difference and change how we read and respond to this part of chapter 17? Well, I think the answer is 40 miles down the road to a city called Berea. So let's look at our passage again. We'll start at verse 10 and pick up where we left off. Verse 10, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So let's look first at the similarities between what happens in these two cities. First, Paul proclaims the same message from the word of God in each synagogue. Second, many of the same types of people respond to the gospel. We see a few Greek women of high standing as well as men in both cities. And third, the Thessalonians riot, cause a riot in both cities. But the big difference between these two is in verse 11. These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And then we see that many of the Berean Jews believed, not just a few of them in Thessalonica. The word noble that Luke uses here to describe the Bereans means to be more open-minded and being motivated to learn. The Bereans demonstrate this with their eagerness and their daily experiences in the Scriptures. They are motivated to grow more in their faith. Now let me suggest, so let me kind of guess and suggest what Paul might have preached in those synagogues, at least an example of what he might have preached, to give you some idea of how hard sometimes this is when we think we know what's being taught ahead of time. I imagine that most of us quickly think of the Ten Commandments as an example of the law when we're, when we're trying to think of an obvious example. And in Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, prior to the first commandment, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. He introduces himself to his people. And while it seems that the first words that follow this introduction are commands, what if they're also further characterization of his character? What if these 10 statements tell us that he is unique that he is incomparable, that he is jealous for communion, angry against irreverence and contempt, desirous for shared rest, for honor, for justice, for a pure heart, for contentment and honesty, and for love of each other. All of which God exemplifies in his holiness, in his nature. Does this possibly shift your understanding of the law. If we view the law this way, can we better see how Jesus came and showed us firsthand these attributes in his life and fulfilled the law by bringing us into union with God's character? Think about it. What if the law isn't just rules to perform? but character traits to imitate. Imitate out of our relationship with God. I think these are the kind of things that Paul would have taught in the synagogues of Thessalonica and Berea, starting with the white noise of their law-based religion, the things they think they know well. And he reasoned with them how Jesus demonstrated and fulfilled the identity of of transforming grace. In doing so, Paul showed that Jesus lived out the very disciplines that cause us to grow more and more like him. He was the divine word in person, not just what was written on the scroll. He prayed and communed with God, his Father. And he lived out the truth of the law, displaying in life what Holy Scripture communicated today we would call those spiritual disciplines bible study prayer and obedience so let's look at each one of those for our own benefit this morning so first let's think about bible study second corinthians 3 says all scripture is breathed out by god and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, can you see how the actions of the Bereans, squeezing out all they could from Scripture and living out what God had breathed into them, demonstrated this kind of results of Bible study. How can we do that, too? There are many good forms of Bible study that we use and encounter all the time to help us with this. And the key to every one of them, as we said in the beginning, is my own motivation to learn. When we read our Bible, are we reading it to get through a weekly or seasonal or yearly schedule? How does motivation or meditation compare to reading your Bible through one time? When we meditate, we take Scripture in smaller pieces, we chew it, we wrestle with questions that come up in our mind, we understand the context of the culture, the overall story, the genre of writing. And this is what we're trying to do this morning in Acts 17. This is Bible study, not just Bible reading. What was the author trying to communicate to his original audience? How does he do that and why does he do that? This kind of meditation helps us answer four key questions of any passage of scripture that we want to study. Take the example of the 10 commandments we just talked about. What does it say about God? What does it say about me? What does it say about what God has done? And what should my response be as a result? John Calvin, in the opening pages of his Institutes, said this, It is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. For we always seem to ourselves righteous, upright, and wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us. Unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. Brothers and sisters, our Bible study should reveal and then reshape our hearts, it should pull us deeper into the heart. Of God for us. So, Bible study is the first gift God gives us to know Him more. Second, after listening to God speak to us through His Word, we dialogue back to Him in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In considering this second discipline of prayer, one question we should probably ask is, why do we pray? Is it to get things done, to ask God to do what we think he should do, or to use what he just learned from us to influence and shape his heart towards us? Oswald Chambers, in his devotional, My Utmost First, Highest, suggests the real benefit of our prayers. He writes, it is not so true that prayer changes things as that prayer changes me and I change things. God has so constituted things that prayer on the basis of redemption alters the way in which a man looks at things. Prayer is not a question of altering things externally but of working wonders in a man's disposition. As we learn more about the gospel through the study of his word, we ask God to change our hearts. Prayer is a practice of joy in what God has done and what he's promised to do. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. And this brings us to our third practice, the obedience of living out what we've learned. Ephesians 5, which we looked at earlier, says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So listening to God speak his word into us, we speaking back from our hearts to God in prayer, and then living out what he has worked into us. God uses all of these to transform our hearts, to trust more in his goodness, and to trumpet his glory in our lives. In this, prayer has another benefit than just talking with God in our quiet moments and in our times of Bible study when we're alone. Unceasing prayer, that means all the time. One writer said, prayer is oxygen for the Christian. It is literally how we breathe, how we get energy and empowerment to live out the Christian life. It takes place in the hustle and bustle of whatever's going on in your life. It is unceasing communion with God while we're trying to deal with three hyperactive kids, or when we're meeting with business partners, or maybe when we're at a sporting event. In one way, unceasing prayer affects the moment-by-moment living is to include Jesus in our prayers. One author describes this as reframing the conversation going on in our head. Rankin-Wilburn writes, instead of a running conversation with yourself, which only reinforces the broken idea that I am the center of reality, choose instead to converse with Christ about what you see, what you hear and read, about what is happening and what you're afraid of. Instead of thinking, what does this mean for me, or what do I want to do, we can reflect the presence of Jesus by saying, what should we do, or what are you trying to teach me in this? Do you see the important link between unceasing prayer, living out of obedience, and studying God's Word together? Now, One of the reasons that unceasing communion creates a strong foundation in our lives is that as we live out what God has taught us we get more insight into what God has taught us. We learn and grow more as we practice living in the presence of Christ and his word. Now I can't tell you how many times in my life that I have been like mulling over a verse for a day, a week, and God will continually reveal new insights, new facets of that verse as he instructs me through conversations I have, through relationships and situations that I'm involved in. Connecting dots from all these different inputs and giving me new insight. I think this is the really exciting part of living out and communing with God in our union with Christ. And I think this is actually practicing something the ancients called Lectio Divina, if you've ever heard of that. Read, meditate, pray, contemplate. And we've talked about reading and meditating scripture and we've talked about prayer. But the last step is contemplation, which I've always found to be kind of confusing. Until one day I read this quote from Eugene Peterson. Contemplation is living the text in the everyday ordinary world. It means getting the text into our muscles and bones, our oxygen-breathing lungs, and blood-pumping heart. It is the link between worship in the sanctuary and work in the world. Contemplation means living what we read, an organic union between the word read and the word lived. Living what we read. Doesn't that simple sentence sound maybe too simple? It's not simple at all, is it? But as we said earlier, it all starts and grows and depends on motivation. We don't just happen to learn things by not paying attention. Actually, we don't learn about things at all. We learn about Jesus. He is the subject of the story. He is the essence of our experience. The point is not the story or the experience we have. It is the person we're with. He is the object of our obsession. He is the prize of our pyramid pilgrimage. Do we want Jesus Christ or just to know about Him? Do we want Jesus or just to enjoy His benefits? We know Him more and more intimately by listening to Him, talking to Him about what's going on in our lives and resting and abiding in Him. Now that sort of sounds easy but it's not. It's very hard. And very hard things remind me of a flywheel. Jim Collins, in his seminal leadership book, Good to Great, presents the strategy of the flywheel. Now, if you're not familiar with what a flywheel is, think of a huge, heavy wheel that takes an incredible amount of energy just to move slightly. It's very, very hard because it's very, very heavy. But with each turn, it builds momentum. And as the momentum grows and builds over time, it gets easier and easier to turn one revolution of the flywheel. The point is that motivation for more in our union with Christ is like a flywheel. In the beginning, it takes great effort on our part to listen and commune with God. But if we're consistent and we even just concentrate on simple, small steps, the momentum starts to take over. And our love and desire for Christ becomes more intense and more motivational. When we begin to see and hear God actually Involved in our lives, revealing himself more and more daily. We yearn, we yearn for more. We yearn for more Bible study and praying without ceasing. And it becomes easier and easier over time. Yet when we begin to see fruit in our lives, tangible fruit, we get more excited about what we're seeing and we're, voted, we're motivated for more. Have you had this kind of experience in your life? Unfortunately, many times, and this is true of me, we want to think about faith and salvation as a single event, a game-winning home run. I was lost, and now I'm found. There is a sense that from our point of view, we immediately change. We walk through the door of faith, and our identity changes, our destiny changes, our purpose and hope change and that is certainly all true but this can also make us complacent for experiencing the present nature of our salvation and our union with Christ now think about God's point of view on all this because it's a much longer practice from eternity past he called me and chose me. And in the 60s, he he called me to himself and changed my heart and has been changing my heart progressively ever since. And sometime in eternity future, all things will be made new. Have you ever thought about your life from eternity past to eternity future as a work of salvation? Over an eternity, there are many small steps to my transformation. Base hits, not home runs. And today, each small step builds momentum that motivates me to gain more of Christ. This is the present nature of my salvation. Walking with Christ and becoming more like him day by day. So one final thought this morning. The actions in Berea that day were done as a group growing together. When we gather together like this morning, he instructs us in his word, he communes with us in prayer, and he empowers us to live lives in obedience to what we've already gained from him, all in the community of his church. So in our living out, what he has worked into us, share your journey with others. Share your lives and your lessons and your heart with one another. This is how we are motivated for even more grace, even more mercy, even more of his love for us and through us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that our hearts would be stirred by you, your presence in our lives, that your word, your spirit, the fellowship of your church would all be tools to motivate us to know you better and more deeper in our lives, that our lives could not contain your goodness and your glory amongst Those we worship with, amongst those we work with, amongst those we live around. May your gospel be clearly evident in our lives and in our words. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.